All right, so we're looking at Exodus 20, verse 14, and then we're going to flip over to Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Let's give our attention to God's word. Exodus 20, 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Then Matthew 5, 27 through 30 says, this is Jesus speaking, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Grass withers, flowers fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, every week we stop for just a minute to ask that you would be with us. We believe that your Word will do what it says, that it will go out and it will actually do things, it will accomplish its purposes. So God, we pray that your word as it goes out and has gone out now, that it will change us, that it will soften soften our hearts to you, and we need you to do that. And so we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a a great Dr. Seuss story of all kids' books. Dr. Seuss is by far my favorite, and so with little kids, we do a fair amount of that. But one of, my, one of the Dr. Seuss books that I like, although I like all of them, is Horton Hatches the Egg. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Horton Hatches the Egg. Maybe more familiar with Horton's other adventures. But Horton Hatches the Egg is basically a story about this uh, lazy bird named Maisie who has an egg and she's sitting on it to hatch it. And she gets tired of doing that. And so she, <clears throat> excuse me, she coaxes Horton, an elephant, into sitting on her egg for just, you know, just a few minutes, supposedly, so that she can take a break. And so he agrees that he'll take care of it. And so then Maisie promptly runs off to Palm Beach, never to return, leaving Horton to sit on the egg. And so now, as you can certainly imagine, right, the elephant perched in a tree sitting on an egg, he catches a hard time from his friends, rightly so. Um, He endures harsh elements, Uh, He is hunted, he's finally captured, shipped across the world, sold to the circus, but he never leaves the egg. He sits on it through all that. And why, why does he do that? Well, here are Horton's own words. He says, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, an elephant is faithful 100%. Right? An elephant's faithful 100%. Horton endured sitting on the egg because he was faithful. He said he would do it, and he wasn't going to break his word. He was faithful. He understood the importance of the fact, right? It's maybe silly of an illustration as this is. He understood the importance of the fact that he committed himself, that he bound himself to doing something. And so he was going to stick to it. He wasn't going to let anything get in the way of it. And while that might be a silly illustration, I think that's exactly what's at the heart of this seventh commandment. The seventh commandment about adultery, that ultimately it's about faithfulness. Right? Seventh commandment, God says that we're not to commit 
adultery. That we're called to be faithful to the covenant of marriage. So every week, right, we're studying through the Ten Commandments. And we say the same thing as we begin. That the Ten Commandments serve as a mirror and a window at the same time. It's a mirror for us into which we can look and see what we're really like as we look at ourselves against the truth of the law. And tonight I think we're going to see that we tend to be an unfaithful people. But it's also a window through which we can look and see what, see what God is really like. See who he really is. And tonight as we sort of look through the mirror, or excuse me, the window of this commandment, what we're going to see is a God who values faithfulness. Who guards faithfulness. And in fact, one, a God who's so faithful... Rather, that he's perfectly faithful to unfaithful people like us. All right, so I want to look at that in three ways, three things that we're going to talk about this commandment tonight. First, we're going to look at the design for marriage and sex. Essentially, we're going to answer the question, why is adultery wrong? Secondly, we'll look at the desire of adultery. How do we commit adultery, basically? And then thirdly, the the decontamination of our hearts. Basically, how do we deal with our adulterous hearts? So first, the design for sex and marriage. Right, again, we're basically answering the question, why is adultery wrong? And to answer that question, we have to understand what marriage is all about. What God designed marriage and sex for. So we look back at Genesis 1 and 2, where we see those come into the world, right? We see that God makes mankind, he makes Adam, and... He makes Adam in his image, which inherently is going to be a relational image, right? God has always existed in perfect relation to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's forever been in relationship. And so Adam is built in that image, built to be in relationship, certainly with God. But God looks and he basically says man is not complete and he creates woman, to exist in this, in this relationship, right? In his image. It's the first marriage. They're built, it's, it's his intimate counterpart. They're built to be together, to experience intimate fellowship. And Genesis 2, 24 and 25 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. And I think you could, in some sense you could say that's really what sums up what marriage is. It's to be naked and unashamed. In other words, that a man and a woman in marriage, they, they bind their lives together in every way possible. Right? They bring two, two separate and distinct lives, they bring them together, and they become one. They become one financially, in a sense, emotionally, spiritually, physically. They bring themselves together. So that, and they can, be, they can be absolutely open and vulnerable with each other. Right? right? Marriage is a covenant that essentially says, we're going to know each other, and we're going to see everything about each other, and that's going to be okay, because we are never going to leave each other. At least until death parts us. 
right? We can mesh our lives together because they're not ever going to be ripped apart. That's the design of marriage. And it really, it really mirrors the intimate fellowship that, between God and man and the relationship that God has, right, the, the relationship that God has with his people. So what's the design for sex? If that's what marriage is, so what's the idea behind sex? And actually, it's pretty simple. Basically, what sex is, is this living, interactive illustration of what marriage is all about. Right? It's an illustration of what marriage is designed to be. Obviously, in sex, you have a man and a woman being very vulnerable, being very open, naked with each other, right? They're physically vulnerable. And it's essentially a, yeah, an illustration of what's true about them in their marriage. They're saying, look, I'm letting you see all of me. And you're letting me see all of you, and we are binding our lives together. Right? It's a living illustration in a sense. All right, so I want to make a, a few sort of bullet points about sex. Um, uh, about four in this point. All right, so first, one thing I want you to see about sex is that sex is God's idea. Okay? God thought of it. He created it. It's his idea. And so what does that mean? That means it's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. It's not something that's inherently dirty. It's not something, it's not sort of a, a necessary evil, right? It's a good thing. Secondly, what's sex for? I think biblically you uh, very easily could make the case that sex is basically for three, th- three things. It's for procreation, not necessarily in, in any particular order. It's for procreation, right? I think you all get that. Sex is for making babies. Secondly, it's about recreation. Sex is fun, right? And again, that kind of ties in the first point. It's built by God to be that way, right? Sex feels good for a reason, because God built it that way. He didn't, didn't have to. It's something to be enjoyed, Procreation, recreation, and communication. It communicates, sort of like what we just said, it communicates what's true about you in a marriage. And it forces you to communicate, but that's a whole other discussion for premarital counseling. Um, third, I think. Yeah. Third thing about sex. Sex actually accomplishes what it communicates. All right, so what do I mean by that? I mean this, sex is not just merely an illustration of the truth of a marriage, right? It's not just some sort of physical activity that you engage in to like, oh yeah, that's what marriage is like, right? We're supposed to be, you know, vulnerable with each other. It is that, but it actually also, in some sense, creates and enhances what it depicts. It's actually designed to help bring about the oneness that it illustrates. In other words, you could say it like this. Sex makes bonds between people. Whether you want it to or not, actually. Sex bonds two people together. Uh, listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 15-17. Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Here it is. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You hear what Paul's saying? That whether you like it or not, whether you intend it or not, Sex makes bonds form between people. When two people sleep together, they attach themselves to each other in a way that's more than just physical. You can think about it like this, that sex is like the super glue of a, of a relationship. What does super glue do? It, it, it sticks two things together. And, and they don't come apart, Right? And they can come apart, but what happens? You super glue something together, you're going to have to rip it apart, and it, it's going to cause damage. And the same is true of sex. It creates bonds. And that leads me to my fourth point about sex to finish up this main point. And it's this. Sex is very powerful. For all the reasons that we've just said, it sort of culminates in the fact that sex is powerful. I think you could think about it sort of like electricity. All right, think about electricity. Electricity is awesome, right? You think about all the things, like when the power goes out at your house, it's miserable, right? Think about all the things that just happen because there's electricity, the things that we run, the things that you can move, internet, you know, everything, right? Electricity, it's powerful. But you have to handle it in the right way, Right? You can't just handle electricity however you feel like. You can't take your keys and put it in a light socket. You can, but that electricity that's awesome is going to do what? It's going to kill you. It's not electricity's fault, is it? It's not that electricity is inherently bad. No, it's great. But it has to be handled in the appropriate way. And I think sex is exactly the same way. Sex is very, very powerful. It's very good, but it's very powerful, and it has to be handled appropriately. And so before we move on, I want to make this disclaimer, okay? This is real important. I want you to hear this. We're talking, obviously, obviously, we're talking about sex tonight. And we're, we're spending one night, what, you know, 30 minutes talking about this topic in regard to adultery. So we can just begin, like, we don't even really begin to scratch the surface, so because sex is so powerful, I want to say this to you, I want you to hear me, that if, if this is something that you need to talk about further, please come talk to me, or to Martha, right? If you've been, if you've been impacted in a particular way by the power of sex, then, then, and you haven't talked, so please come talk to us, Okay? Because we're just going to scratch the surface, and not, yeah, lest we do more damage than, than good. I want to say that. All right. So we've seen first point. Second, uh, the desire of adultery. How do we commit adultery? Which is really just application of what we just talked about. What does it look like for you and I to commit adultery? Where, where do we do it? Um, and obviously, this commandment, right? It, it obviously prohibits. What, what is adultery? It means sleeping with someone, having sex with someone that is not your spouse, right? Okay, so 
When you do that, that's committing adultery. I think we all got that. That's pretty clear. But then, much like last week, we have this passage in the New Testament where Jesus explains the true depth of the law. And it goes really deep. It goes all the way to our hearts. Last week we saw murder, right? Murder is when you end someone's physical life, yes. But Jesus says, really, when you think a bad thought about, when you hate someone in your heart, that's murder. And here Jesus says, when you, when you think about someone lustfully in your mind, when you've committed adultery in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. So it goes deep. Um, so if we take all that into account, the truth of, of what sex is, what it's designed to be, uh, marriage, I think it's fair to say that that any way that we treat marriage or sex in a way that's not keeping with its design, we commit adultery. And it can take lots of different forms. So I want to give you, give you a few. Three or four. First, what, first one. Well, I think we'll start with exactly what Jesus said. To look at someone lustfully. What does that mean? Does it mean to find someone else attractive? Does it mean to see someone and to... To think that they're attractive. I think, it's, I think it's fair to say no. That's not thinking lustfully about someone, right? There's certainly a, a distinction there. But where does your mind go from there? Because the, the minute that we begin to, to sort of chase down that thought, the minute you begin to undress someone with your mind, the minute you begin to play out some sort of sexual fantasy in your mind, Certainly, obviously, you're in the realm of a lustful thought, which Jesus says is committing adultery. Maybe it's playing out what it would be like, playing out the fantasy of, being, of just being married to them. I think that can be a lustful thought in some ways. Um, right, but, but when we do those things, our hearts evidence the fact, right, that what we really want, can we turn that off? Our hearts evidence the fact that we really don't want to be covenantally committed to somebody. We just want what they can do for us. And it goes really deep. A second way, and this is, in some ways an extension of the other, uh, pornography. Right? This is a big deal. Because um, in some sense here, the, the work of the fantasy is already done, in a sense. Right? And look, hear me say that this is for, this is for guys and for girls. Right? This just isn't, isn't just a guy problem. And you, all right, so with pornography, you might very well be tempted to think, what's the big deal? Right? There's no victim. Uh, I'm not hurting anybody. This isn't, you know, privacy of my own home or whatever. Uh, There's no victim. So what's wrong with it? But I want you to see that fundamentally it undermines the very concept and purpose of marriage and sex. Right? It eliminates eliminates what they're fundamentally about. Right? Which is to to bind ourselves, to commit to to someone else. It's to take sex and pull it out of that context. It's inherently selfish, right? 
Because it's not about the other person. It's not about, it's not about you giving yourself to someone else. It's, right? That's what a fantasy is. It's all about you. Right? And in the end, right, look, you can look up just tons of surve- I mean, not surveys, but uh, studies and, and research on this thing, on these sorts of things now, that, that pornography is really undermining actual marriages. Because what it does, the more, the more you get into that, right, the more you uh, abs- absorb yourself into that way of thinking, and the more you ingrain that way of thinking into yourself, the less you're going to be able to relate to a real person, right? Because other people have needs and wants, and they don't just act or do whatever you want. Nobody else is going to be able to live up to your fantasy. All right, third way that we, we, one of the ways we commit adultery, sex before marriage, sex outside the context of marriage. So why is it bad? Have you ever thought about that? Like, all right, what's the big deal? Why is it bad? Well, at least one reason is this, because it's a lie. Think about that. Sex, I'm going to suggest to you that sex outside of marriage is essentially a lie. Because think about what we've said, that sex is designed to reflect what's true about married people. Right? Here we are. We have bound ourselves to one another. I am committing to you, no matter what, whether you get sick, whether you get ugly, whether you get rich, whether you get poor, whether whatever, I will be with you no matter what. Right? So when you take... When you take sex outside of that context, you're saying something with your bodies that's actually not true about you in reality. Right? Is it Vanilla Sky? Where is, is, it, is Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky? Anybody? Is that her? Right? She says, I'm pretty sure that's the movie. She says something to Tom Cruise like, when you sleep with somebody, your body makes a promise whether you want it to or not. And that is a great line because that's exactly true. So sex outside the context of marriage, you're basically saying, look, I'm, I am binding my life to you no matter what, except I'm not. And all that's going to do is create dysfunction. Uh, third one, or rather fourth one, I guess. Um, this was... Well, never mind. Um, Sleeping over, right? Um, this is the, uh, this is more, had, had more conversations about this in my previous context, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, right, the sleeping over with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, or not, and that basically, you know, where you say, like, we just, we just stay in the same bed. All right, let me give you a few thoughts on that. Number one, no one believes you. Right? Even if you say, like, no, I promise, we just, we just sleep in the same bed. Okay, number one, whatever. Number two, even if that's true, which it's not, no one else believes you. Like, if you could somehow convince your roommates, your friends, whoever else sees you, they assume you're having sex. Um, you're putting yourselves in a, in a terrible, if you, if you do want to be sexually faithful in that regard, you're putting yourself in a terrible situation. 
and maybe most importantly, basically what we've already said, that you're still trying to have aspects of intimacy without the commitment that goes with it. Does that make sense? You're trying to, you're trying to grab hold of some of the aspects of intimacy, but without the reality behind it. It's just going to cause dysfunction. All right, so if, you've, if you're tracking and you think, okay, I'm with you. My heart is adulterous in, in some form or fashion. And I, and I hope you are. Because it means you're listening. So what do you do with that? What do you do with your heart if you look at it and, and what you see is what I see in mine? That it is prone to be unfaithful. That it is prone, that your heart, like mine, is prone to look at other people for what they can do for you, then it's prone to abuse sexuality in some way, whatever that might look like. What do you do about that? How do you deal with an unfaithful heart? Well, look, here's what I want to pitch to you in this third point. How do we decontaminate our hearts? Or how, how are our hearts decontaminated by this? Here it is. You get to rest in the faithfulness. Your faith faithfulness, faithfulness, faithless, whatever. Your heart that is not faithful gets to rest in a God that is faithful. You have a faithful God. Right, like we've said, the law is a window into God's character. And what we see is that he values faithfulness so much that he makes it one of the top ten, Right? And it, it, the law actually reflects what he's like. And what he's like is faithful. I think we've talked about this before, but regularly throughout the Old Testament, one of the ways that God depicts his people uh, as sinners is by talking about them as adulterous. Right? Uh, he says that Israel, his people, that they, they, quite frankly, whore around on him. Right? They run around on him. Uh, they're unfaithful. And as we've seen in just the last few minutes, that's certainly not just an Old Testament problem, but ours as well. But what you see in the Scriptures is that, that despite God's people being unfaithful, you see throughout the Bible that probably the number one illustration of the Gospel, how God loves His people, is marriage. What you see is that God, you see it all throughout, that that God loves his people in such a way that he says, even though you're unfaithful, I pled, I'm going to bind myself to you, no matter what. I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to marry you, even though you're unfaithful. Right, it's all throughout. We could hit lots of highlights, but uh, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and only God passes between the pieces, saying he's going to keep both sides of the covenant. Uh, the whole book of Hosea, right, where God tells Hosea to go, this is only for Hosea, not for you. He says, go and marry a prostitute. And she runs around on him. She has kids by other men. And she ends up uh, sold basically in the sex trade or slavery or something like that. And he goes and he buys his wife back. Why? Because he wants Hosea to know his heart. He wants Hosea to know God's heart. That even though his people are unfaithful, 
he pledges himself. Isaiah 62, 5, the end of 5 says this, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. See what he said? Again, he uses marriage as an illustration of the gospel. And then in the New Testament, you see, you see Paul talk about the, the church as the bride of Christ, right? That you and I, the church, we are his bride. He is our husband. And it all culminates in Revelation 19 at the end that all time is going to finish in the marriage supper of the Lamb where His people finally come together and it's consummated. Finally get to be with Jesus. Right? You get this? Yeah, Ephesians 5. It's all, it's all throughout. In Ephesians 5, what you get, you get the picture that that not only is Jesus the, the perfect husband, right, who, who basically says, I will never leave you. No matter what you do, no matter how much you sin, I will not leave you. Right? Yes, he, he's the husband that won't leave, but he's also, he's not just sort of passively uh, faithful. He's actively faithful. Right? Meaning that part of what it took for him to marry us meant that he, he came to this earth and he bore all of our sin and shame on the cross. He bore the punishment for all of our faithless hearts. He took all that on himself. And all the righteousness that he earned of living perfectly, of looking at a woman, of, of, we'll say, of looking at the opposite sex, and not only never having a lustful thought, but actually always loving them perfectly. Not just not thinking where he shouldn't, but actually thinking exactly what he should. You get credit for that. It says that he, he did all this so he can present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, that you, might be holy and without blemish. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus takes his righteousness and he just he puts it on you like, like, like a robe. You just get to wear it. There's a story, uh, Mark Driscoll, I guess former pastor, tells a story of a couple in his church and the wife came to him and she said, I've, I've yet to tell my husband, they've been married a few years, I've got to confess to my husband that I was not faithful while we were engaged. And so she goes and she, uh, she sets up dinner or whatever with her husband and she's very nervous about this, obviously, and she confesses to him. And she says, when we were engaged a few years ago, I slept with somebody else. I wasn't faithful to you. And so you can imagine, they're, and they're very much, in, she loves him. She's a wreck. And he goes, he, evidently he leaves, and he comes back, and he has something for her, and he takes out, he opens this box, and he takes out this, this beautiful white robe that he went and bought. Right, so she, she has no idea what, what's he thinking, how mad is he, are we going to get divorced, he'd probably be right to do that. And he takes out this robe, and he says, this is for you. And in our bedroom, 
you can wear this. And you can let this remind you that because of what Jesus has done for you, you are a spotless bride. That you wear, you wear robes of righteousness. Right? That's how he saw his wife. How Jesus saw his wife. And what a great illustration of the, of the very truths that we're talking about. So if you find yourself faced with the truth of an adulterous heart, then you need to rest in the faithfulness of God who forgives sinners. That's, that's what you need to do. That's the only thing that's going to change your heart is to know that God has pledged Himself to you no matter how many times you do it again. Even the gross sexual sin that, 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 you, that you struggle with. Whatever it is. He's pledged Himself to you. As cheesy as this might be, we can say this. He meant what He said. He said what He meant. And Jesus Christ is faithful 100%. And so with that in mind, then you would be able, then, then and only then are we able to go and actually fight against sin, right? We don't have time. This would be a whole other sermon that we're not even going to get into. I'm going to end here. But only with that truth can you begin to do what Jesus said, which is metaphorically fight against sin by cutting off your, gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand, Right? Not to get God to love you and show Him how disciplined you are, but because He's clothed you in robes of righteousness. And so maybe you need to get a filter on your internet or get rid of your internet or get your roommates to help you be accountable or break up with him or her or whatever it is. But you get to do that. The only way you'll do that is if you know that Jesus is your faithful husband and He's offered, him, he's offered Himself to you for free. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, our, you are our faithful spouse. You have pledged yourself to us. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, even though we are unfaithful. We pray that that love would change us. We ask it in your name. Amen.